1: Hello and welcome to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager. Each week at this time we gather for spiritual conversation and enlightening guests, and I'm glad you're here. Time and distance are no barrier to energy, and that means that no matter when you're listening, no matter how you found us, you are here for a reason. And I hope that something in the next hour lights you up and helps you move forward. Now, this is a, this is a big day. This is a happy day for me. Award winning author and spiritual teacher Andrew Harvey is here for a conversation about spiritual activism. In his latest book, Radical Passion, Andrew has collected some of the essential messages in his enormous body of work. These are messages that call us to engage deeply on a level that is personal, spiritual, political, to help us become empowered so that we can turn things around, turn the tide, turn tragedy into grace, turn desolation into an opportunity to co-create a new world. Are you ready to meet him? Andrew Harvey is an internationally acclaimed poet, novelist, translator, mystical scholar, and spiritual teacher. He's written and edited more than 30 books, including the best-selling titles The Hope and The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. He's taught at Oxford University, Cornell University, Hobart and William Smith Colleges, the California Institute of Integral Studies, and the University of Creation Spirituality, as well as various spiritual centers throughout the U.S., He's the founder and director of the Institute of Sacred Activism, and you can find out more about Andrew and all his work at andrewharvey.net. Andrew, welcome to Out of the Fog.
0: I'm delighted to be with you, and thank you so much for concentrating on this book, because in this book I have poured out the fullness of the vision that's been given to me, and I feel so grateful to have had that opportunity. It was the present I gave myself for... My 60th birthday. And it's a huge doorstopper of a book. Almost everything in it is in it except the recipe for celery soup, which I don't know, so...
1: It's one of those books that is is to me one of those books I want to keep by my bedside. And when I got when I got the book and I opened it up and you see that there's the table of contents and it's one of those where you get into it and you go, oh, this looks in, oh, that, oh, I think I'll have some of this. <laughs> and so it's one that you get and dip into maybe more than one you sit down and read from cover to cover.
0: Well, it's composed through the brilliance of my wonderful. Editor Janet Thomas, who was the person who helped put it all together as a seven part symphony. So you can go into the book in any movement, but the most wonderful way I feel of really getting to the guts and wildness of the book is to read it from the beginning to the end and experience how many themes come back, but in different ways, just as in music, so that by the end of the book, I hope that you've listened to the most sumptuous and gorgeous symphony, streaked with darkness and lightning, obviously, because yeah. we're in that a terrible time, but very hopeful and very filled with real help and real advice and real inspiration for claiming your divine identity and then enacting and embodying it in sacred action.
1: Now, I first... I first heard you speak, uh, at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, and this was probably 25 years ago, maybe. Oh, and, my goodness. And you were, um, you were preaching, you were giving the sermon, and I was in the choir, so I was behind the oh, altar. And was beh- it the
0: sermon I gave on Mary? Yes,
1: that's it. I was yes. there. Um, yes. <laughs> that is it. And even from behind, right, I could only see the back of you, Andrew, and even from behind, the the mm, the passion, the energy, the fire with which you teach really came through. And when I was getting ready for this interview, I found a video that you just posted just a few days ago on your Facebook page of a talk you gave in Oregon. And the same fire and energy and passion, it's 25 years later. Where does that, what is at the root of your passion? What what burns in you in this way to, to continue to give the work as you do?
0: That's such an important and challenging question. I think I was born with passion. I come from a family that has tremendous different kinds of passion on both sides. The men are mostly soldiers and heads of police and sometimes rulers, and their passion is for justice and for an honorable world. The women are wildly creative and gloriously, intensely passionate in the way they live their lives. So I think those two kinds of passion came to me from my family and that I've united them. I've united the passion of the feminine with the passion of the masculine. But the real answer is that I've been on now a very intense mystical path for almost 40 years. The key to passion, to discovering passion and to sustaining passion is the opening of the heart center. And as you know, the heart center is not the physical heart. It's slightly to the right of the chest. It's a center known in the psycho-spiritual body, known in Hinduism as the Anahata, known in Sufism as the royal center, known in Christianity as the kingdom of the heart, known in Sufism as the burning royal centers, actually. When it opens, you have the most overwhelming experience of divine presence. You see the light burning in and as everything. You're given a direct experience of the glory of the divine, what the Sufis call the kibria, the splendor that is always here but that we're blinded to so long as we are in our full self. When the heart center is open, something astounding starts to happen. And that is that the light descends into the heart center. And just as the physical heart pumps blood around the body, so the open, adoring, praise-filled, grateful, practice mystic sacred heart center, that center pumps light around all of the different parts of the psycho-spiritual bodies. So what happens over time, and this is a great mystery I'm trying to explain, what happens over time is that all the seven chakras align and unify in a column of what I would describe as golden fire energy that becomes installed in the human being and allows that human being to always be fed by divine peace, by divine energy, and by divine passion. And if i have been able to keep my passion alive until the august age of 63, it's because this center has been open since my late 30s, And that I've cultivated a practice that keeps it open so that whatever is happening in my life and whatever is happening in the world, I can feel at all moments, if I truly continue to do the work, this gorgeous, sacred, wild, holy passion energy rising in me to give me clarity, to give me courage, to give me strength and to give me the determination to keep going on in the middle of sometimes very difficult circumstances.
1: Well, you've said the, that we, and I agree with you, the world is hanging by a thread.
0: Yes, a praying thread. Mm. Yes.
1: The And that I think a, a lot of us, and even a lot of the the, quote, good guys, I'm putting that in ironic quotation marks. A lot of the good guys have just gone, I don't know, we can't, I think we're done. I don't know what to do about it. I'm going to go watch TV. And yes. there are a, a few, a kind of a bright, burning, passionate few, who are, who are, and you are, I count you as one of those, who's trying to keep things going.
0: Well, it's when things get most terrible, when things get at their most frightening, that we need the greatest peace and the greatest passion. I think it's absolutely disgraceful that people who claim to be spiritual seekers are turning away from the world and just playing pat cake and indulging their narcissistic desires at this moment. This is a time in which the whole human race is facing the potential of extinction. This is a time when it won't only be the human race that commits suicide, it'll be the human race committing suicide and murdering a great deal of nature and faced with something so frightening and so terrible, why don't we all open to what the mystics are telling us about our divine consciousness, do the inner work to get in contact with that consciousness, open ourselves to the pain of the world, choose a mission, get together with others and start doing something. That would be the noble reaction. That would be the useful reaction. And that is the only reaction I have any possible intention of devoting my life to. The worse it gets, the more radiant we're summoned to become. Rumi has a wonderful poem when he says, The world could be choked with thorns, But a lover's heart will stay A rose garden. The wheel of heaven could wind to a halt, But the world of lovers will always go on turning. So mount the stallion of love and do not fear the path. However black with obstacles the way may be, love's horse will carry you home. Mm -hmm. Those words do not deny the tragic circumstances that we are in. They don't deny that the world may very well be hurtling to destruction, but what they point to is something that far too few teachers point to, or far too few seekers know about. What they point to is our responsibility as lovers of God to be lovers of God, emanating joy and hope and purpose, enacting our sacred missions and inspiring others to do their inner work so that they can become outer sacred activists, so that this world can be preserved, a new humanity can be born, and a new world can rise out of the ashes of the old uh-huh.
1: and doing that at least as I believe, doing that inner work should come with a warning, because opening to the love of God, opening your heart center in that way doesn 't mean like oh nice, and there 's cupcakes, and I hold
0: hands with the angels what right that's right been such a dereliction of truth. No, opening the heart center means that you will experience rapture at a level you did not imagine, but you will also go through ordeals and struggles and sometimes very painful transformations, all of which are known in the real mystical systems and have to be accepted. They're part of the work of love. Love isn't just joy, it's also suffering. If you love the world, you're going to suffer seeing the world being destroyed. If you love animals, you're going to suffer as you watch them be crucified by our madness. If you love the poor, you're going to be devastated by the systems that create systemic, brutal oppression. If you love anything, you're bound to have some suffering in that love because everything is dying. If you really want to love, you have to accept the pain that is the price of love, and you have to accept it as a divine gift because it is a divine gift. It increases your depth of compassion, and it makes you able to be one with all those who suffer on the planet.
1: And that having made that choice, made that movement, it, it can't be undone. You can't unsee once you have seen.
0: No, because when you open the heart in that way, the spiritual heart, it puts you into an inescapable relationship of unity with everything that lives and breathes. One side of the experience of unity is rapture, and the other side of the experience is an experience of the chaos and suffering that are also part of the divine alchemy. You have to accept them both, you have to realize they both are sacred, and you have to pray for the power to be able to hold them both at the level and in the extremity and at the range that they need to be held. And the only way you can create a crucible strong enough to hold both the great ecstasy and the great suffering that belongs to the authentic path of the mystic is to Abandon yourself daily to deep spiritual practice because it's only deep and continuing and relentless and tender spiritual practice that can make of you a container strong enough to hold both the light forces and the challenging painful forces that are necessary for your transformation into the next level of your evolution.
1: Why are we afraid to begin? Why is there so much kind of paddling around in the kiddie pool of, of the New Age spirituality that you're talking about? Why are we afraid to do the real work?
0: I think the deepest answer is that we've been systematically rotted by a love of comfort. We've been systematically undermined in the depths of our strength by a whole culture's narcissistic addiction to material goods, to comfort, to easy ways of doing everything. This has seemed to liberate us, but in fact, it has riddled us with cowardice and destroyed the foundations in many people of authentic conscience. And I believe that there is a deliberate plot behind this, that this is not unconscious on behalf of the elites that control our planet. As long as we can be addicted to comfort, addicted to easy solutions to everything, we will remain juvenile, whining, self-absorbed, committed only to our own personal happiness and blind as bats to the agony of the world and the situation that the elites are keeping going.
1: But how, how does that serve anyone? The, the elite will perish as, as we do, will be right crushed by the machine that they created.
0: They know this, but they don't care. Hmm. What they want is the power and the money before the whole ship goes down. They know the ship is going down, They know that what they're doing is destroying the planet, but they are possessed by greed to such an extent that it's driven them insane. So part of their insanity is to know this, not to care, to continue to gather power to themselves so that if the ship is going to go down, they have all the best berths and they have, the orchestra keeps playing for them.
1: So must we, must we go down?
0: No, of course not. We will go down if we don't transform our situation, if we don't transform ourselves and claim our power and join together in a worldwide revolution of love. Yes, we will. But if we do, there's a chance that we can transform this situation, and we must now take that chance because time is running out. The door of opportunity for the transformation of the human race is closing.
1: How do we begin? How can we, in our scattered separate places start to turn away from that love of comfort and convenience from that, from that, that kind of it, it feels good sometimes when you put the blinders on so that you can only see a certain thing. How do we begin then as individuals to start that shift?
0: The first thing we can do is to realize how lethal this addiction to comfort really is. And to begin to understand how it has rotted us, how it has made us cowards, how it has made us terrified of standing up and telling the truth. And from the shame of that recognition, we can then proceed to really choose to do the inner work of connecting with the courage in us that comes from our divine identity and divine consciousness. So what I would suggest to people is have the courage to see how you are in a prison of comfort Mm. and then take the inner journey to discover the springs of eternal courage that flow from a living experience of your divine identity, which you can only have if you now sincerely and relentlessly turn up in spiritual discipline. Mm
1: sincerely and relentlessly there's that warning label again right you can't just go oh, i think that'd be nice So oh, i drifted away it one of the things i liked one of the places i'm sorry i didn't read the book in order because i went through the, i forgive you my uh, child th- <laughs> thank you i will sin no no i'll probably sin again i, I can't say that but um <laughs> as i went through i saw the forward that you wrote um to a translation of the way of the way of a pilgrim and for me on my own journey the jesus prayer has been such a powerful thing and and when i when when i look at no more powerful prayer yeah and when i look at something to me that prayer is something so simple and so profound it's like a wheel that turns in the heart and begins to turn and i think in my own case, when I said yes, and I said yes, please, I'll show up relentlessly and sincerely—not <laughs> always cheerfully, but at least relentlessly and sincerely in spiritual practice. That prayer, having that little wheel, once you start the wheel turning, it does not stop, but it carries with it. You have to do something with it. You can't just endlessly churn around and around. You you must speak. You must. You have to do something with
0: it. Yes, because what you what's revealed to you through the Jesus prayer is the is the kingdom, the light, appearing in and as everything. If you read The Way of the Pilgrim, you see that the man who goes on a journey to find out the deepest meaning of the Jesus Prayer and the deepest power of the Jesus Prayer uses it again and again, practices it again and again, and then has a series of absolutely amazing mystical visions, which are the mystical visions that will be given by grace to all those who sincerely use either a mantra or a simple prayer to polish their hearts. But when you polish your heart, what happens is that it becomes a mirror in which reality is reflected directly without mask. And you see and know that we are in a totally divine universe as divine beings, as light drops of a great ocean of light. You don't just see this, you feel this and you feel the enormous bliss and joy of this, but you also feel the enormous responsibility of having been given such an overwhelming and absolutely profound insight into reality, because once you've experienced the great love of God for all things and in all things, then what you're challenged to do is to put that love into practice and into action. So for me, the mystical path is not a passive path at all. It requires a certain level of passivity because you need to know how constantly to open, how constantly to receive, how constantly to surrender. But you learn how to open and receive and surrender so that you can become filled with divine ecstasy and peace and passion so that you can fulfill the meaning of what it is to be a human being, which is to im body the transcendent, and radiate the knowledge that you're given from God in the way you treat people, in the way you talk to people, in the way you act in your life, in all the decisions you make, and most importantly in a terrible time like ours, in the way you stand up for compassion and justice and transformation of society in the real burning world.
1: (sighs) Not just to ask for it, and not just to talk about it, but to be on fire with
0: it. Yes, to be on fire with radical passion for it, which is its greatest gift. But this great gift has, as I said, great responsibilities, because you're not there just to receive this gift, to savor it, to dance around with it, to claim you've had some astounding experiences greater than other people. (laughs) You're here to be filled with it, to be empowered by it, to turn up in the great evolutionary plan for humanity that God has this great birth, potential birth out of this death of a new kind of humanity. Mm. So again, one of the greatest subtle dangers on the path is the danger of narcissism, because if you think that you are here just to have mystical experiences and to savor them, you are, again, indulging a spoiled, entitled ego. You're here to have those experiences, to be so inflamed by those experiences that you become a lover, warrior, midwife of the new, and dedicate your whole life and all of your gifts and resources and powers to serving the divine in reality, which means serving all human beings, the creation, animals, and really standing up for a new world and of voting yourself to be one of those wild and mad enough to try and create it,
1: mm-hmm. and there is there is a wild there is a wild madness to all of yes. this. It's not all sitting quietly on hard benches, folding no. our folding our hands, and speaking in soft tones. You can tell I'm Episcopalian, right? We yes. sit very quietly, yes. and we're wearing very good shoes while we talk. This in is, a- <laughs>
0: this is another kind of fantasy. This is one of the silliest and worst aspects of the New Age. Its the idea that enlightenment and holiness are very soft and gentle and don't react and are always serene. That's only one half of the truth. And Mm -hmm. it is a truth because there's one side of God that is absolute peace, absolute serenity, deathless being. There's another side of God that I would call the mother. I would call the first side the father and the second side the mother the mother is becoming the mother is this vast gorgeous love energy that streams from that piece and is fed from that peace but which creates the whole universe and Andrew and we're lives coming in and has
1: everything. I'm so sorry we're coming right into the break when we come back with Andrew Harvey I want to dive into this notion of the divine feminine which is a huge central part of talking about radical passion and sacred activism. You are uh, listening to Out of the Fog with Karen Hager. We'll be right back with Andrew Harvey after this. Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn or babysit I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs. Ladybugs, caterpillars.
0: It's really cool, actually.
1: A place where you don't have to make time for free time.
0: Lots and lots of kinds of species here.
1: Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the Other You. The Enchanted You.
0: It's magic what
1: flowers do. The Adventurous You. My favorite tree, yes, that one the (laughs) free-to-be-me-you. Ask your parents to take you to this not-so-far-away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org, a public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Do you get tired of styling your hair every day? And do you want a good hairstyle every day? Hi, I'm Sarah Schuster. I went on a website called inventnow.org. And after that, I decided to invent something too something called the Instado. Just imagine you just put it over your head like a helmet does and you pick your hairstyle with the buttons on the side and you can have instant hairstyle in seconds People like it People like Jeff Bart. I like it and people like Kenneth. It's this helmet thing and if it it's over your head and it's great. thank you and- Kenneth. You should go to inventnow.org and it could help you come up with your own invention. After all, look at me on the radio now.
0: Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council.
1: I'm home and I love it. I'm home. I belong. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. Where I belong. It's always nice to come home. But these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making home affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home. I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1 888 995 HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I be. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council.
0: And now back to Out of the Fog with Karen Hager on Empower Radio. Empowerradio.com.
1: Welcome back to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager, and I'm talking with Andrew Harvey. We're looking at his book, Radical Passion, Sacred Love and Wisdom in Action. And you can find out more about Andrew and his work at andrewharvey.net. And of course, I welcome your comments, your questions, your musings about what you're hearing on the show today. You can always reach me through my website, karenhager.com. Andrew, before we were so rudely cut off by the commercial break, (laughs) you were just just beautifully swinging into that place where we kind of were shifting our idea of the nature of the divine, where that the divine feminine comes rushing back in with that passion, with that power, with that sense of something being born in us and something dying in us that's so different from that sort of, uh, is it masculine? I don't know, that sort of that, what what you would call that addiction to transcendence. Really, yes. Patriarchal,
0: right. Well, I think, the most important part of our time, the most important fact of our time is the tremendous return of the mother that's taking place in it among so many seekers and theologians and mystical visionaries. In the ancient Hindu system, we see the universe as a sacred marriage, and it's a sacred marriage on every level between the eternal light, which the Hindus think of as the father, and the power that streams from that light that is inseparable from it, the wild love power that is the creative evolutionary power that creates the whole universe and lives in every aspect of it, that is the mother. And the Hindus have this wonderful image of the father transcendent light as the diamond and the streaming of the diamond, the streaming light from the diamond as being the mother that erupts in the Big Bang to create our cosmos and that then lives in every tiny quark and neutrino in all of the bodies of all of the universes. When you get into connection through grace with this force, it awakens five tremendous passions in you. Firstly, a passion for her, a passion for this vast love force that is creating everything, Secondly, a passion for the creation as the manifestation and epiphany of this tremendous force. Thirdly, a passion for all living beings who, all of them, are the mother in disguise, utterly holy, utterly sacred. Fourthly, a passion for divine tantric relationship, for ecstasy lived between beings, both sexual ecstasy at the highest level, consecrated sexual ecstasy and profound sacred friendship. And fifthly, the passion to put this passion into radical action on every level so that the, all of the institutions and all of the arts and sciences and all of the political systems and all of the economic systems can reflect the laws that you discover exist. In the core of this passion, the laws of the equality of all of life, the laws of the sacredness of all of life, the laws of the interrelatedness of all of life. And when these five passions come together in you, what they birth in you is a new kind of human being, an embodied divine human being. Because what the mother does is create the universe. And what she does in our inner lives is help bring the deepest soul force of our being into alignment with all of the other powers, our emotional powers, our intellectual powers, our powers of will, so that we can become a unified force field of love and wisdom, enacting the truths of love and wisdom with power and grace and humility and wisdom and passion in reality. This sounds very grand, and it is very grand. But if you experience this transformation, as I and hundreds of thousands of others are now experiencing it on the earth, you realize it's also very humbling because you continually fail at it, you continually exaggerate your own attainment of it. And it is always coming back to reveal more areas in you that you need to transmute. So what it engenders in you is a mixture of divine pride, pride that you are an embodied divine human being, but also, very importantly, divine humility, because the process of really being transformed into a divine human being is endless and is always going to have new difficulties to surmount, new shadows to heal, new... Opportunities to see your own laziness and subtle ego and work with grace to transmute them.
1: And that's part of the, the mercy in that process and also part of the hard edge of that process. I've, yes. people who listen to the show have heard me say, I'm sure many times that if you meet someone who tells you they're enlightened, who says they figured it out, who says, yep, they've all, they're all done. They got it figured out. Psychotic, you, you need yeah. to run as fast as you can. Yes, <laughs> Cause absolutely. you've met someone who's really missed the whole, you missed the whole thing there.
0: Well, it's, <laughs> crazy to say you're enlightened because that, if you were enlightened, there'd be no use to say you're enlightened. <laughs> and secondly, because enlightenment isn't a static achievement, it is a field of endless expansion. There was a great Christian mystic called Gregory of Nyssa who coined the term that I love, epictasis, which in Greek means endless expansion. And what he's pointing to is the greatest mystery of the universe, which is that love being infinite is capable of infinite transformations. So the journey, the evolutionary journey that love has seeded in us is capable of transforming us in ways that we now cannot even begin to imagine. Even the stage of divine embodied humanity, which is now being glimpsed by hundreds of thousands of people, will be transcended by stages that we don't understand because love is infinite. So anyone claiming to be enlightened cannot be enlightened because enlightenment Radically humbles anybody who touches the fringes of this field because what they understand is that they're entering into a glorious furnace of perpetual transformation that will never be over in any dimension. Hmm.
1: Which to me is part of why I know we're not, we won't go down with the ship because there's all, even as we are on that fraying thread, as you say, because it seems we reinvent ourselves all the time. It's just now, can we, will we get off the couch? Will we get out of the muck that we've created ourselves and do the digging, unearth ourselves to make it happen?
0: Well, that is a thousand dollar question and nobody knows the answer to that. I don't Mm -hmm. think there's anybody on the earth who can say definitively either that we will go down or that we won't go down. We're in a period of enormous doubt, fragile mystery what I can say is that there is a process of evolutionary birth taking place in me and hundreds of thousands of others. This process has its rules and its laws and its rigors and its ordeals. It's a glorious process, and it's the only process that can help us become strong enough to deal with the situation, to thrive in it, and to react to it with humble, passionate service. So let's get with it. Let's gamble our lives away for God and see what happens. And even if the ship go down, even if the world is destroyed, those who choose to live like that will be rewarded by divine bliss, will live the divine life on earth, and that's worth everything.
1: Mm. You've said that in in opening the heart, and opening to this path, that we must be willing to be broken open, and you just said we must gamble our lives for God.
0: Yes.
1: That's terrifying and very attractive all at the same time.
0: Yes. Why, why was it so terrifying? It's ter- We're prepared to gamble our lives away for money. We're prepared <laughs> to gamble our lives away for sex. We're prepared to gamble our lives away for power. You see millions if not billions of people gambling like crazy in frenetic and hectic and self-destructive ways. So why can't we gamble our lives away for ultimate truth, ultimate beauty, and ultimate joy?
1: Because it means that we give up, we have this illusion of control, this very tight, um, narrowly focused illusion of control, that if I gamble my life for God, if I open my heart, if I start that wheel turning in there if i allow myself to see who i don't know what's going to happen next i can't control the outcome we don't know what's going to
0: happen next anyway nobody has the slightest idea what's going to happen in the next three minutes
1: that's right but we have the illusion that we do and we cling to that i think
0: But that's what causes our secret anxiety, our misery, our unhappiness. And when you begin to understand that it's this illusion of control that is keeping you separate from the greatest imaginable experience of your unity with the whole of life, then you start to realize that this complete fantasy of control, which has nothing to do with reality because fundamentally we're not in control of anything except our consciousness, When you realize that, then you realize your ultimate duty is to raise your consciousness to such a pitch that it becomes able to dance with reality instead of imposing forms on reality that reality has absolutely no intention of taking.
1: How are we seeing that? How are we seeing sacred activism in the world now? How are we seeing those hundreds of thousands of people, all the awakened beings? How are we start? Are we starting to see the change? I feel like I I can. I think
0: we are. Absolutely. How do you see it?
1: Oh my gosh. I see it in people who are willing to talk about these kinds of topics, not just talk about them, but live them. But there's a vulnerability. There's a transparency in the way that we, that people are waking up that I'm not sure I've seen.
0: No, I think the crisis is now seeping through even into the deadest coma-ridden brains. People are aware that it's all up for grabs increasingly, and this is giving a a more radical honesty to the conversation. I hear you. I agree with you.
1: And it brings us to a place where we must... Either uh, uh, kind of turn around and bury our heads in the sofa cushions and hope that nothing comes to disturb us, or even the, the comatose, as you say, are realizing that the waking up is already happening. What will now? What will you do? How will you yes. join in? Right? How will you use your gifts, your talents, your all, your inspiration? How will you use that? That's how I see the sacred activism happening.
0: Well, actually, sacred activism asks two questions, and they're interrelated first question is, who will you be in the face of all this? Will you be one of the ones who keep the death machine going? Will you serve its laws of greed and cruelty and deranged power? Will you just watch as Syrian refugees are shot crossing the Turkish border, as millions of people die in wars, as The whole horror continues or will you be one of those who really claim your divine truth through sacred practice and initiation? That's the first question. Because the way you act and how you act and the wisdom with which you act and the power with which you act will be determined by the quality of your inner being. They're not separate. Because the self, the divine self, has two aspects, as I've said. It has a transcendent aspect, which is always in the peace of being, and it has an imminent aspect, an active aspect, which is always in dynamic becoming. And you're summoned to be that self acting in reality. When mm, that's...
1: As we move into this new so there's new age like let's the unicorn had a birthday party and all the archangels came, there's like that new age, right? Yeah. And then there's,
0: with us, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> And then there's the new age, which yes. I think that you are talking about. Yes. As we move into the new age, is there may
0: I dunno, maybe this is We won't move into the new age. It's not going to be prepared for us. We're going to have to be the co-creative agents of the new age because this new age is not something the divine is going to lay out for us like a garden that we can then take off our old dirty shoes and dance through. That's not at all what it is. This new age is a new evolutionary stage that we have to create or co-create with grace through cooperating with the rigors or and revelations of an authentic evolutionary path. So that means there will be no new age if hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people don't get this and start doing the work in and and outer to realize this. That's the new age.
1: And as we are co-creating this each in our own, each in our own way, right? Starting at one level and then... Cumulatively, yes. as we as we do that in your experience and from what you've seen, because you travel all over the world and speak all over and teach all over, is there an area that especially cries out to you for attention? So if someone listening to this says, I want to start right now, I'm gonna open my heart and start a spiritual practice and I'm going to go do X or Y.
0: Well, what I say to people is this, I say, if you really want to find out your mission, dare to do the following practice, and this has been done by hundreds of thousands of people that I've taught all over the world, and it really helps, and I've had so many letters about it. Get up at three o'clock in the morning, surround yourself by the peace of the divine, feel deep peace and protection, And then dare to ask yourself one question. What of all the causes in the world breaks my heart the most? And at first you'll find that when you ask yourself that question, you'll come up with all kinds of causes that really cause you pain. And there will be. The world is full of suffering. But if you continue with that question, you'll come to discover that there are one or two causes that cause you so much suffering that you hardly dare look at them. And those are the ones that you are called to address. Because if you find through prayer and through grace and through meditation the courage to really face what that heartbreak reveals to you, you'll find, too, that in the middle of that heartbreak, there is, as Rumi says, a fountain of deathless passion which will never run dry. The things that break your heart the most are also the things for which you will find yourself prepared to stand up for and keep working for in impossible conditions. This has been the experience of all of the great sacred activists of history. For my part, what breaks my heart the most is our horrific treatment of animals. I've loved animals passionately since I was a child And coming to face what we are actually doing to animals in our laboratories, in our abattoirs, in the terrible way we're destroying their habitats, in our insanity of hunting nearly extinguished species, has almost driven me mad with despair for the human race. Because when you really feel, or begin to feel, the horror of what we are now actually inflicting on animals everywhere, then you are threatened, in my case, with a kind of insanity of pain. However, I understood that being threatened by this insanity of pain was a great grace because it really challenged me to step up and become an advocate myself for animal rights. I'm a teacher of sacred activism and of the mystical path, but my own private sacred activism is centered on animals because that's what shatters me the most. So find what shatters you the most and then create what I call a network of grace, a group of about six to 15 people who share your passion and come together and celebrate and create sacred friendship and pool your resources and do something real about your heartbreak in your local situation so that you can start discovering this amazing alchemy that only heartbreak will be able to make available to you, this alchemy of a transformation through heartbreak into becoming a passionate, noble, fierce, clear, tireless advocate for what breaks your heart so that the injustice that shatters you can initiate you into becoming a a lover warrior midwife for justice this Mm. is the great transformation awaiting all those who open to the heart
1: Mm. lover warrior midwife not Someone standing by, kind of mumbling prayers. Not, someone, (laughs) you know, handing out flyers. But a lover, warrior, midwife. That's that to me. That's that face of the divine feminine that isn't, um, not June Cleaver. Look, darling, I made you some cookies. But that's Carly, right? That's I. Well, it's both Mary and
0: Carly, isn't it? Because don't knock the person handing out the leaflets. It takes a lot of courage to stand in the rain, and but (laughs) that is. A wonderful thing to do, but it's not enough for a situation like this. We have to become very much more strong in our divine identity, very much more concentrated, very much more aligned with each other, very much more drawn into true sacred community, and very much more dedicated to urgent radical action, to have a ghost of a chance of surviving what's happening, let alone thriving, let alone creating a new world, which is a possibility that is held out to us by the divine, but which is a possibility that we have to be a lot braver than we are at the moment to grasp a lot more concentrated, a lot more illumined, and a lot more impassioned.
1: Can you tell the listeners, when they go to andrewharvey.net, there's a lot of things that you're doing. You're everywhere, sir. Um, How can they connect with you? What have you got coming up that you want to let people know about?
0: Well, I've just written another book, actually, which is a book I think everybody would enjoy. It's just come out. It's called Play Life More Beautifully, and it's a series of dialogues with an amazing 88-year-old piano teacher in New York who was a great concert pianist but gave it all up to really serve others and help others develop their musical truth. It's about much more than music. It's about the whole of life because Seymour Bernstein, who is the man I've had these conversations with, is a true sage. And it's a book that's now getting everywhere. And people seem to be really delighted by its themes, which really are about how through discipline you can connect with your life, passion, and mission, and how that is the one source of enduring joy. So I think that anyone who is excited by what I'm saying would find in that book A lot of inspiration. What I do is to really divide my life into three different ways of expressing my sacred activism. I teach a lot all over the place. So if you ever want to come and be part of an evening or a weekend, I'd be delighted. Just look on my website to see where I'll be. I also take sacred pilgrimages because I believe deeply in the power of pilgrimage to unite people with their divine source and to inspire them to do the work. So if you feel you'd like to come on pilgrimage with me, I'm taking a group to India, to where I was born. In the winter, to North India, it's a trip called the Trip to Divine Love, and we're going to the Taj Mahal, we're going to Kajuraho, the site of the tantric temples, and we're going to my, my favorite place on earth, which is the crazy, holy, incandescent city of Varanasi, which I call Benares because that's the old British name. So there's that. And the third stream of my work is devoted to the Institute of Sacred Activism. And this institute is being revived in a completely new way next year, early next year. So if you want to be trained more deeply in sacred activism, given the tools to really claim this sacred mission of turning up and enacting love in reality, then look at my website and keep looking at it because we'll be announcing the dates for the rebirth of the Institute in this new form very soon.
1: And I can't let you be on without asking about the Moondog Farm.
0: Oh, Um, yes. Well, this is a huge... There's so many things going on at the moment, but this is very close to my heart because I have someone who's a very dear friend and whom I've been working with for a long time called Jill Angelo, who is, like me, an impassioned lover of animals. She spends a great deal of her time in serving in shelters as well as trying to keep sacred activism going. And what we're launching soon is a fundraising campaign to buy a small farm where we can look after broken down and diseased animals that no one else will look after and in such a way that they can have beautiful lives. And we're doing this as a pilot, really, to inspire other people with limited resources to start taking animals in, to start making of their gardens and homes, sanctuaries for animals. And Jill has called this farm Moon Dog Farm, and she will live on it with her husband and look after the animals. I will go very often to be with the animals and we're hoping that this will be an inspiration to millions of people to start doing this crucial work of providing oases of safety and sanctuaries of love for all kinds of animals now that are so desperately in need of it.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Andrew, thank you so much. I know that we're at the end of our time. I appreciate so much you being on the program to share, we've just, we just tapped the surface there. Right, There's so much more there. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, it's a gift. great
0: honor for me, and I love being with you, Karen. Thank you so much.
1: You're very welcome. I'm sending you a virtual high-five. That was, was great fun. <laughs> Thank you, baby. So, high-five, sir. Back to you. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Andrew Harvey. We were talking about his work in uh, sacred activism and his book, Radical Passion, Sacred Love and Wisdom in Action. His newest book is Play Life More Beautifully, and you can find out more about Andrew and his work about the Moondog Farm, about that sacred pilgrimage to northern India in the winter. All of that is there for you at andrewharvey.net. And of course, if you would like to connect with me, if you're interested in finding out about the classes I teach or having a private session, or just in seeing a really big photograph of me and what I look like when I have makeup on, you can find all that at karenhager.com. And I always welcome your... Thoughts and your questions, your musings about the show. If you feel, as I do, that we are hanging by a thread, if you feel that by uniting in collective intention, that by pooling our energy and being serious and disciplined, we can make a difference in the world, we can turn the tide. I invite you to check out openpeacefulheart.com to get information about a monthly group meditation, guided meditation open to people from all over the world, where we focus our energy on peace in our hearts and peace in the heart of the world. And thank you for listening today. Together we are spreading a little more light in the world and a little more light is always a good thing. Until next time, I'm wishing you peace.